Welcome back to the Gate 15 interview. I'm Andy and your host for this monthly discussion with experts and valued guests from throughout our homeless security community. One of our recurring monthly Gate 15 podcasts along with our weekly security sprint, our members of our team provide a faster run through the week's most notable security all hazards updates. And like this month, this last week, I was out of office. Dave Pounder had the uh, security sprint with Alec and they both had a lot of fun making fun of me for most of that pod. But that's besides the point. Feel free to listen and subscribe and listen to today's podcast, where I'm really excited to be joined by a very respected intelligence leader, Ms. Angie Gad. Angie, thanks for joining me. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, Andy, for having me. Yeah, for sure. We, like, as we were saying before we started, you and I have kind of worked around each other for a long time, and it's fun to be able to collaborate in different ways, and it's fun to be able to finally have you on this podcast. So let's just, let's just jump right into things. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be an analyst and some of the exciting things that you've been involved with? Yeah, absolutely. So how I really got into Intel and being an analyst was, wasn't planned. It was kind of, um, it was actually the requirement. So I had just moved back from Egypt. I had one year of college left and one of the requirements to graduate was to do an internship. So I found this internship with the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security. And I specifically wanted to try and work for their Intel shop. Um, or intern with their Intel shop. And I did that. I remember when my internship was over, it was great. I had a, had a great time. I learned a lot. I was the first intern they ever had. Um, so it was a cool experience for both of us. And I remember at the end, my supervisor asked me, do you want to do this, you know, long-term? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> it's like, it was great, but I don't think I want to do this. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I was wrapping up my, uh, my graduate program and my former supervisor reached out saying that they're completely reorganizing their analysis bureau and that they want me to apply to be an analyst. Awesome. Went to apply. I completely bombed the interview. It was the worst <laughs> interview I've ever had, but they gave me a second shot. So there's like, everything was like working against me not being in this field, but somehow yeah. I broke in and I fell in love and it was like, this is the only thing I really want to do. Um, and I, when I remember when I got the gig, I specifically requested, I was like, I want to cover ISIS. So I was, let me kind of like pause for a little bit. So I was joining this government agency based in New Jersey and the focus was counterterrorism. Um, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. It aligns with everything I'm studying in grad school. And I know all the people because I'd interned with them years prior. So it was great. And then I specifically requested ISIS because on a personal level, I was kind of just monitoring that development. It was around 2014 when I had applied and I got ISIS and I also got far-right extremist militias. And I was a very, very busy young analyst at the time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and kind of the intersection of my background and this role was really interesting because I was, I had uh, lived in Egypt for so long. That's where my family's from. Um, and I was able to kind of jump right in and kind of um, uh, uh, read kind of the Arabic literature that ISIS was pushing out and all that stuff. So I kind of just was able to jump right into that, um, seamlessly and it's been great. And that's kind of, that's, that's how I really got started in this field. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I don't want, it's a really fun story. And I think that's where we first sort of crossed paths originally, I think was when you were there at New, in New Jersey. And I think you're working on something, at least, I, at least I saw your name, which things that you've been involved with, I think is when I first like recognized you there, which is, which is pretty cool. And you just doing that initial focus, right? 
who knew how, how important yeah. that would be. And, and being a native Arabic speaker is so, so helpful. We've got a, a good colleague to our team, Bridget Johnson, who's a lot of work at Homeland Security today. And you know, she is you know eyeballs deep into translating and, and diving into the details of, of those documents. It helps so much to really understand exactly what's being said versus you know, relying on somebody else's interpretation of it. So it's awesome you're able to do that. So let's let, let's let's stay with that for a minute. You know, yeah. one of the things I really appreciate about your background and the perspective that you bring is that you've done this with both the private and the public sides of intelligence, which I think is really helpful to an analyst to understand the challenges, freedoms, and constraints of both sides because they've both got advantages and disadvantages, I think. And it's great to understand both of those. I think it makes us a more complete analyst and expert. So from your time in New Jersey, what are some of your valuable lessons in working with the public sector? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, quite a few. So I'll cover uh, some of them here. Um, one of the I think one of the lessons I learned with the public sector was um, really in a nutshell, you get to work on really cool and sexy cases. Like I got to work on these counterterrorism cases. It was it, I got to kind of work in active investigations. I got to work with investigators in different um, agencies. I got to work with FBI, NCTC, NYPD, like all these other agencies um, directly, JTTF, all of them. And I got to go down to DC and work with other agencies. So it was, it was really cool collaborating as such a young analyst in my early 20s with all these other agencies that I had I don't know, I just was really, really starstruck, right? So that was, yeah, yeah. was really cool. Um, but I also realized one of the things was, okay, the wheels are slow here, right? So because as someone who's young, fresh out of grad school, I'm like, okay, I need things to move faster and as, an, as a millennial and kind of we're used to kind of a faster pace. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about this later as well, um, is that public sector is just a little bit slower. But um, what I did learn is that even though it was slow, I one of the great things about public sector is that once you get past that, you get to see your work actually having an impact. And yep. I think that's one of the lessons I learned. I think at first it was hard for me to see. I was like, I'd go to my supervisor. I'm like, how is this Intel report I'm writing making an impact? How is this saving lives? How is this helping people? Right. Cause I'm writing this report and I just felt like it went into this ether. Yep. My supervisor was like, listen, your report is helping inform the decision-making of top ranking government officials in the state of New Jersey, primarily the government or the governor, right? He's our, he was our primary client at the time when I was there. And he's like, you may not see it right now, but for instance, this report is helping inform how to like allocate resources accordingly to prevent a terrorist attack that would impact this, this constituents or the residents of New Jersey. So seeing that impact and then eventually something, a few things happened was like, wow, my report helped save this or help do this. Yeah. So that was awesome as a young analyst. I really wanted to see that impact. And, you know, that's something that we talk about a lot is that our generation is more focused on the impact and the value of their work versus just like having a, like a certain title or making a certain income. Um, so that was a great lesson, something that I really love doing in the public sector and then working with other agencies. I think the other thing that I really learned being in the government versus private sector is that you're really held accountable. We can't just write about or focus on a topic that has nothing to do with our AOR or the constituents. For us, since it was the Office of Homeland Security for New Jersey, I had to be mindful of what I wrote about and the areas I focused on because at the end of the day, these are taxpayers' money. And right. I couldn't just focus on something that had nothing to do or was not relevant at all to New Jersey, right? So sometimes I'd be like, hey, I want to write about this. And my supervisor would be like, 
What does that have to do with New Jersey? Why do the residents of New Jersey care? We have to be held accountable. This is their money. We have to make sure that we're, they're also our primary customer here. So that was something that was a really good lesson for me to learn. It's like, I can't just go in here and, and talk about, you know, a very niche group in like Kurdistan or something, right? It had to be relevant to New Jersey. And that, right, just learning the accountability of, of all that was, was important. And then I think the other lesson, one of the last lessons I'll focus on was resources, right? Um, we're very limited with resources. Um, and, you know, that was like budgetary constraints or staffing limitations or certain trainings, but with what we had, with what, what little money we had, we were able to still we had some really cool trainings that we can go to. We had some really cool opportunities, but it also kind of forced us to learn and work within those limitations, learning how to prioritize certain tasks, um, maximizing the value of what resources we did have available. And because we didn't have access to like fancy tools or fancy subscriptions to certain things, this is back in 2015, 2016. So we didn't have access to any of those like expensive platforms or expensive tools. So we had to do everything manually. It was yeah. very tedious. And I would like literally just have an ex- like my own Excel spreadsheet and I would input my findings and collect it myself. Um, it was hard, but it, I think it made me a better analyst and it made me more thorough. And then now I wasn't as reliant on the technology starting off as an analyst, whereas now I think analysts coming into the field, they have so much, so many like tools and um, cool software that they can use that if that thing, if those things break down, I think it's harder sometimes for people to shift and function without them. You, you, you had so many interesting points in that, you know, I mean, one, I think the whole one, I think anybody's listening to this and might be either young in their career or considering a career in intelligence or analysis. You hit a lot of really important, I think, thoughts in that. And I want to, your next question is going to be really interesting in that respect too. But so that starstruck piecing is really a fun one. You know, when I started down this career path, I'd served in the military. I got out, I was called back in and I found myself supporting DHS. And you know, here I was working to, you know, a very high level across the federal departments and agencies, you know, working with, with the, the whole interagency, you know, government and with the private sector. And it really senior levels. I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, and just sort of like taking that all in and then, you know, being able to make, make, make something of value in the work that we were doing. And you hit a really, really critical point of there's lots of sort of fun stuff to do and it's interesting, but you got to bring it back home and make sure that whether it's, whether it's public sector or private sector, really, like, does this, meet my mission requirements yeah. does this make sense am i communicating clearly you know why we're even doing this whether you know for us it's exercises or you know reports and analysis like why are we going to spend time and dollars and ask others to spend their time you know, doing whatever it is or reading whatever it is like there's got to be a so what value add and if your you know, yep. client is the governor of the, of, the, of the state of new jersey then you know who you're targeting and, and why and you can have that positive impact and if it's a you know senior corporate executive you know, why are you asking them to read something, do something? There's right. got to be a value added and so what? And that I think, you know, that you really spoke well to that. So you get a lot of really interesting things. And I think I really love the last point too on sort of the, the manual versus automated piece. You know, we do a lot of sort of old school type analysis here on, on our team. And I think it's, it's really important because the human factor is so critical in being an analyst, right? I mean, you bring so much perspective from what you've done as a person, as an individual, who you've learned and connected with it. You know, it's really important to really understand a threat, a security concern, a new issue you're raising. You know, you bring so much to that personally that you can't automate and you get, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise I'd be out of a job. <laughs> um, uh, so that, that's awesome. So, so let's flip that then a little bit, right? So yeah. same, same question, 
right? As far as you, you've also done the private sector yeah. side of the house, right? So what are some of the valuable lessons that you've learned from news on the private sector side? Yeah. So with private sector um, moves a lot faster, right? Than the wheels of government. And we have a lot more resources at our disposal. Um, unless you're kind of at a smaller startup, right? Where kind of resources are limited. But for the most part, I think when I was in the private sector, it was um, pretty generous. Um, I think with private sector compared to government, um, one of the things I realized is that we're very, we're very client focused in private sector jobs and the types of clients are so diverse. So when I was in the public sector, I just had like two primary customers and it was like the governor and this, the residents of New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and then in the private sector it was like, well, it's, it was a government agency or a bank or an electrical company or, um, an insurance company, right? It's just a whole plethora of different types of clients and you had to shift, right? So yeah. that helped with your audience analysis that helped you shift each time. Like, well, this client would want to know this and would want me to prioritize this versus this client. It helped and it forced you to kind of be like, okay, well, I need to understand my audience better and this client and build that reputation and that, um, uh, that relationship with them. Um, so it, you made you, I think, more well-rounded as an analyst and a and at the same time, it exposed me to a lot of topics that I normally wouldn't have been exposed to, um, whether it was like a political campaign or whether it was a tech company help, wanting us to help them with certain content moderation on their platform, or if it was like a bank wanting their yearly threat review, threat landscape kind of overview. Right. So that I think helped me helped as a, helped me kind of look at, and this was like a, a shop. Uh, like a vendor Intel shop, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, maybe uh, a little different than if I was like an, an Intel analyst, like at a bank, for instance, where like my my customer is a little different. So that's kind of a little bit of my background um, to understand what I'm talking about. Um, but that being said, even though I had a whole different, uh, a whole kind of host of different topics to focus on, it made me more more well-rounded. I think um, sometimes private sector work, um, it can be fun and engaging and sexy. Like counterterrorism and public sector work. And then sometimes you have like the normal kind of day-to-day -day where it's like, hey, this executive is traveling to this country. Yeah. Can you make sure yeah. like there aren't any negative mentions on them online or whatever, right? And that's kind of more the mundane day-to-day -day kind of monitoring stuff. Um, but you get, a, you get a good mix of both, right? Um, and I think one of the other lessons I learned about uh, private, which, which really uh, was a little... Um, at first I was like, oh, this is very confusing to me, but private working in private sector, I couldn't talk as much about what I was doing versus when I was in the public sector, even though no. in the public sector I had a clearance. Um, and, uh, uh, and I remember being able to kind of talk more openly about the work I was doing and the information I was finding, because most of it was OSINT really. Um, but with the private sector, because there's a lot of proprietary technology, proprietary information, NDAs, um, I wasn't able to speak as publicly as, as about what I was doing, and I had to get all these yeah. types of like permissions. So, I think that for me was kind of ironic, but it was it was still a, a good lesson to learn, given that there's so many competitive shops out there. So it made a lot of sense. Um, and I think the other thing, and this is, you know, hopefully this isn't the only incentive for folks for analysts trying jumping into the private sector, yeah. but um, I remember my first private sector job after leaving the government, and I was just shocked at how one just little things like 
food stocked in the fridge for free and <laughs> care more about your well-being. And it's like, here's this much money to do whatever you want for trainings. And I was just like, wow, we had a vending machine that barely worked in the government, right? So it was like in our office and it was just like, we had, we didn't have these kind of resources. So I just felt very spoiled. Um, and it was great, right? So it's, and it's not just that, right? They actually care about retention and um, not that the government doesn't, um, but they did everything they can to make you feel comfortable and happy and take care of your mental well-being, right? So I think those are things that, um, I, I guess generally just the perks of private sector versus public, but also kind of just lessons learned as well. Um, and I think one of the other lessons I learned is I think there's more job security in government. Um, I don't know if that's changed since I was last there, but I feel like, especially with smaller startups and even more, you know, established tech firms, I feel like mm -hmm. with government, you had a lot more job security. So that's another kind of, I think, perk of public sector versus private. Yeah, I think some really good points. There. I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think that still is true, right? I think there's, there's a trade-off in sort of what you're doing. One, I think, you know, on the government side, you do that typically stability, yeah. right? And, and sort of like clearly defined career path and progression, sort of very, structured and that's yeah. part of why it's such a big slow machine at times right but it's it's very established but it is often you know very spartan right you don't have the luxuries and comforts because it, it is based on taxpayer dollars you are trying to be frugal and responsible stewards of those dollars and so it's really you know it's, it's the idea of service and you know helping to protect your community right. that's you know your, your your town your your city your your state the country it's really that service mentality, I think, on the public sector side that's different than on the private sector. Not that you can't have a service spirit. We, we try to get 15. I think we really try to, you know, we have very much a, a dedicated you know, focus on, on protecting our country and, and our industry and our people. But you've also got a different focus is the monetary aspect of it. And it's just, it's just different, right? Not better or worse necessarily, but but it can be very different and, and contrast when you look at them together. But I think, again, it's one of the great things about you and your experiences. You've done them both. So you bring that you know, very well-informed perspective into whatever you do. And you've seen it on both sides. You can, you can have appreciation for your private and public sector partners. You know, you're just talking with them. You get yeah. it, you get it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, awesome. well, so so you've done it on both sides and mm -hmm. you've seen a lot. You started with your, like you said, international terrorism, domestic extremism. You've done it from the public sector side, done it from the private sector side. You've worked with those different organizations and you have to define the, the threat or the issue you're raising to their different interests, right? So you've, you've yeah. done a lot. And, and over these last 10 years, you've seen a lot. You've been around the block quite a bit, right? So yeah. how have you seen changes in our threat environment evolve over the last you know 10 years and so and, and what are some of the notable changes you observed that, that really stand out to you right what, how the threats change yep. how's the environment change what, what are you thinking about I think so the, the extremist landscape or the threat landscape is as we as you know Andy like it's constantly evolving um one significant thing I think in the last 10 years has just been like the pr proliferation of online platforms and different social media um, and it's really provided this huge avenue for extremist ideologies to spread and to recruit followers. I think, I mean, I wasn't an analyst back in 2001 or pre, like pre 9-11, but if you think back then, it was like these very like janky forums that Al-Qaeda was posting on and it wasn't, people were not that well connected then versus now. Um, and you see how extremist movements since 9-11 and in the past 10 years have become more globalized, more interconnected, and more transnational in nature. So 
you see how the internet has facilitated communication and coordination among extremist groups, even extremist groups that are on the opposite ends of the extremist spectrum, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's something having covered jihadist groups and having covered far-right extremist groups my entire career has been so fascinating to me to see how they've come together, to see, I remember one of my old, one of the analysts I used to work with, uh, one of my former jobs used to call it like the horseshoe theory, right? Where it's like, it would, it's almost coming back, right? So basically like I'd see jihadists referring to far-right extremist literature and mimicking like certain attack styles and plots. And then I'd see far-right extremists and neo-Nazis online posting translated copies of ISIS's literature and telling folks to read this and absorb it and apply these lessons into their attacks and into their ideologies. That to me is fascinating. I mean, seeing it kind of converge um, as like an analyst, I was just like geeking out over these things. And I think that's scary, right? And that's something where you have to know both so well to understand what they're picking up from each other and how this could evolve into a bigger domestic threat at least here for the United States. Um, So, yeah, I just think that it's become more, I guess just to summarize, it's become more, um, uh, while it's become more um, proliferated, it's also become more diffuse, if that makes sense, right? Because there's so many different platforms, it's so hard to kind of track where they're going and when you do track them they're there for just a fleeting period and they jump to something else and it becomes more secure and encrypted and it's kind of basically being able to stay um on top of it with which whatever new platform or or um um social media i don't know uh outlet that they're using at the time or whatever the flavor of the month is you know yeah, there's there's so much, right? There's so much. I think that's I mean, again, you had a couple of really interesting points. I think you know, part of me was laughing because you were talking about sort of you know, the change in technology, right? One, there, there is so much. It's very hard to monitor everything. There's just so much of it. I had a, a colleague reach out over the weekend. You know, they very actively monitor one social media platform that we really don't pay a lot of attention to. Some very good information that he was pulling from there, right? They, they, they're in it all the time. And so it really, you have to sort of figure out like, where do I get the information that I need yeah. And, and utilize that. And that might be more than one source. It might be government and private sector and multiple private sector. But, you know, seeing back to the long gone days, right? You mentioned, you know, 9 11. And back in the day, you know, some of those foreign terrorist organizations would uh, take advantage of email, right? And they'd go in and yeah. if they wouldn't be able to communicate over long ranges without getting intercepted. They would yeah. log in and draft an email and leave it in draft. And then somebody would log in from right. another corner of the earth and, and continue on that draft. It, it allowed them to communicate securely right and so the simple days <laughs> yeah the simple days right it was a very different environment but you know right. whether it's you know violent crime or porn they're always taking advantage of the newest technology right, right? they're always ushering it in and i just think it's, it's funny and, and then the you know that's where that 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 horseshoe which is an interesting you know way to look at that that overlapping venn diagram yeah. of oh, yeah. international terrorists and, and far-right extremists it is it is kind of scarily amazing how much overlap there is and yeah. you see these groups that in in, in some respects are are opposed to each other in some respects there's a lot of agreement right yeah to see them sort of share these ttps best practices lessons or for another it's like you know really is this it's it, it's a lot to take in you know to really think that and analyze it it's 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 a lot so yeah definitely a lot of interesting nuances there a lot of interesting analysis to be done there understanding the threat environment who the actors are the types of things they're doing and to see how they learn and grow from one another so that's that's all really good and interesting so as you as you look at that and you've seen these changes, you mentioned technology for one, yeah. um, you've seen the, the growth of far-right terrorism and other forms of extremism here in the United States over the last yeah. decade. With all those changes, with the enduring threats and challenges, what are your biggest concerns right now? What do you think we, you know, as a country, 
as analysts, what do we really need to be paying attention to as we go about our business? So that's a, a really good question. And I think to just tie it back to technology is to continue. I think one of the things is just continuing to look at how these emerging technologies are going to, one, are going to impact us, but two, how extremist and nefarious actors are going to exploit and utilize them. So everyone's talking about this, right? Open AI, chat GPT, how can extremists take advantage of these technologies to write prompts to help them, for instance, um, conduct an attack or get away with plotting an attack without being um, uh, without being kind of caught online, right? So it's kind of, as an analyst, I would think, okay, how, right? Everything, Andy, everything we did in the government was what, like tabletop exercise, how to think like an extremist so that you can prevent them from doing that. So I think the next thing we need to be doing is like, okay, thinking like them to learn how you could exploit these technologies to help you kind of reach your goal of killing people, for instance, and okay, how can I then get ahead of that? How can I learn how to write prompts on open AI or on ChatGPT, whatever, right? So to then get ahead of like what analysts could be using, how can we, I don't know, this is completely off the cuff, but like, is there a way to prevent or flag something like that when someone writes a prompt on ChatGPT to use it for nefarious purposes for reasons of like killing people, right? So um, as a technology advances, we have to kind of think on that same line and just be like, okay, well, I need to get ahead of this by doing these trainings myself and figuring out how an, a terrorist or extremist could potentially um, take advantage of that. Yeah, I, th I think that's so right on. I mean, I mean, definitely there's, you know, ways to, just like we do social media, right? There, there, there's right. private platforms and there's a certain expectation that those platforms are doing a reasonable job to identify potential threats and misuse of their platforms and technology. And absolutely, you know, AI resources should be doing the same type of things. A really good point. But, you know, I love what you said there. Because I think a lot of folks just don't stop to appreciate that. And that's one of the things we really pride ourselves on in our team is you've got to think, you've got to understand the threat environment. And you've got to be able to think like the adversary in order to help, you know, yeah. articulate what are the things we should care about, right? I'm not thinking about what the adversary might want to do and how they might do it. How can I really talk about you know right. that in, in a smart way as an analyst or, or developing an exercise? You know, we, we we talk about understanding the threats, assessing the risks, and taking action. That's how we you know, talk about things during K fifteen. So if you don't understand those threats, yeah, then you really can't do the rest of it. And so I think you're absolutely right. You like know the enemy, think like the enemy, yeah. and then speak with that voice. That that allows us to be so much more effective. So appreciate those points. And yeah, technology definitely. I mean, it's a yeah. it's just such a complexity. And something you're always, you know, it's that cat and mouse evolution that we're always sort of, you know, identifying new technologies and techniques and ways that the adversary can operate and then trying to you know, mitigate those risks and, and whatnot. So it's a lot. So, hey, a, a lot there. I appreciate your perspective. And again, you, you bring a great balanced perspective to all of this. And I'm sure there's a lot we could get into, you know, more than this, but I want to pivot to our, our more conversational part of the podcast. Yeah. Just get to know a bit more about who you are, right? So this is a part of the show when we move from the serious stuff and get to know you a little bit more to at a personal level, the human inside the cool. analyst mind that is Angie Gad. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you three questions and your challenge okay. is just to answer the first that comes to mind, whatever it is, might not even be related, you know, whatever it is. So I ask a question, you answer, we'll see what happens. Does that sound okay? Okay. okay. So uh, what I've been doing recently with my team, sometimes I like to use anywhere I, I ask, and basically your job is to answer whether you love it, hate it, or don't care. Right. Okay. And, and so, so that's going to be part of this. We'll also ask some other more open-ended questions. So, so let's get into it. So three questions with Angie Gad. So let's start off. So it's, uh, it's May, Memorial Day's 
approaching, let's let's talk about summer. So while summer would officially be here for a little bit longer, you know, May brings us this Memorial Day weekend and massive rushes to the beach. You and I were talking about that before we started. We're both yeah. fans and appreciate the, the sandy shore. So as we look to the rest of the summer, the beach, Angie Gad, love it, hate it, don't care. Oh, I love it. I've been around the beach my entire life, so definitely love it. I, I agree. You, you get 500 <laughs> points for that question. Good job, Angie Gad. It's a correct answer. All right. So moving on, moving on. Are you, Coffee or tea? Coffee, hands down. <laughs> Angie, is, is, is that thick, rich, like Arabic coffee? Or is that like your just, curate brewer? Just American drip coffee. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to my no, Arab words. <laughs> you, you've offended people right now. <laughs> Um, yeah, Arabic coffee every like once in a while when I'm really dragging, but it's so strong. Like I can't do that on a day-to-day basis. It is very strong. Whenever I visit my, my mother and she's, I'm always tired and she sees my tired <laughs> eyes. Like when we really just like, can I make you a coffee before you go? And I'm like, yeah. Cause that's like the most potent thing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. There's there a really good show that came out. Um, I'm a big fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's got a, a newsletter that comes out daily with yeah. just bits of information. And um, it last maybe maybe last month sometime they had a really good study they were referencing that talked about you know, the, the combination of of three cups of coffee and three cups of tea can do potentially a world of benefit in alleviating concerns around stroke and dementia in older Americans. I thought that was really interesting. Wow. So I've been using that as part of the justification for me yeah, to have say, more coffee and tea great every day. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. But, it's, you know, I definitely do coffee. Like coffee is my main to start my day. Um, but at night as I'm winding down, like after I put my kid down to sleep, like for some reason, I, I think it was after Ramadan or like because of Ramadan recently. Yeah. I, I, for the first time I stopped drinking coffee at night after we broke our fast and I started drinking tea just so it's not as strong. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Egyptians, we like to do tea with milk and sugar. So that's like, it's become like a night routine now. So I'll just have a cup, like a, like, but it's still black tea, but I'm, and I still fall asleep. It's fine, but it's like yeah. very calming at night. I don't know. So yeah, it's yeah, a new we- thing. We, 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 we love doing tea at night in our home. Yeah. I, I drink tea throughout the day too. I, I, I blame it on my, my English birth maybe. I, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, tea, you, know, you mentioned the, the sweet milk tea. I remember when, yeah. when I was in Afghanistan, I would go and my, my, my team, I lived at the governor's compound, just me and a small team living there with, you know, the, the local population. And whenever I'd go see the governor, uh, his, his assistants would run up to me, you know, Captain Jabour, uh, milk tea, milk tea. And it was just, I mean, it was just sugar and milk with like a guess there was tea in there <laughs> like a drop was, of tea <laughs> yeah yeah it was, just, it was just warm and it was delicious it was that's delicious. how you have to have it like morocco same thing it's just sugar like yeah. everything it's the best way to have your tea yeah yeah you, we can call it tea i guess we can call it tea. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like it's like dessert but yeah it was good it was good all right so so last one last one if you have to yeah. spend the rest of your life in one place a city a town out in the middle of nowhere where would it be and why oh I have three that are filtering through my, and I, all right, all right. We can take them. We can take, we take more than one answer. I think there's a small town on the Red Sea in Egypt called Sahla Hashish. I promise you it's not the Hashish that we think of. It's a different, it's a different word in Arabic. <laughs> there's like two different meanings, but this one is just like a very calm kind of enclosed part of the, the Red Seas. So it's just very, very relaxing. I go there all the time um, when I visit Egypt. I think the second one is the small town um, in the south of France that I visited for the first time in September, and it's called Antibes. And all similar, very calm, very chill, like Mediterranean vibes. Yeah. Um, 
And I think I went there in September. I was like, I think I want to retire here. It's just, it's just beautiful. And then the third would be Amsterdam, which is very different than the other two. <laughs> Both have like, very. so this goes back to the first question, right? Beach all the way. Yeah. Um, but Amsterdam has a canal. So I think I was also very charmed by that city. So, but they're, 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 in that they're, they're, order. In that order, nice. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I haven't been to any of those cities. Familiar. I've been to France. I've been in the Middle East, and and my my oldest son was just in Amsterdam uh, yeah. over spring break and, and loved it. So yeah. I appreciate all of those. But definitely, you know, whether you're in the Middle East or in the yeah. south of France or Italy or in Greece, I think that those Water. Mediterranean vibes yeah. are so calming, right? It's the climate. Oh, yeah. It's it's the it's the attitude. Yeah. It's just a very enjoyable, yeah. relaxing culture and, and, and different languages you know different parts of the water but but there's a yep. commonality i think amongst all those cultures i know 100 percent. i think yeah I mean, I mean i'm from uh my family's originally from both my parents are from alexandria so like they're born and raised on the mediterranean i think that's why i just love the water and like beach yeah. so much so everything comes back to those those roots and like anything near a body of water i think would make me very happy so yeah i'm with you on that i'm with yeah. you on that we're, yeah. we're big, like i said beach fans here and yeah yeah so yeah I'm, I'm very i'm very ready to get back out to the ocean <laughs> so so awesome awesome well hey thank you for playing three questions with me and thank you for joining me for this gay 15 interview and just sharing some perspective from your you know over a decade in analysis and intelligence of working in the private and public sector i really think you bring such a complete um you know background to to the work that we do and i really appreciate that it's been a pleasure to get to know you more over the years and spend time with you today before we go any final thoughts or anything you'd like to share with those that are listening no nothing on my end just thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure andy yeah thank you i'm, I'm excited we got to do this today and I look forward to talking with you some more and collaborating some more in the future so i think with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Angie, really, thank you so much for taking time out to join me and being my guest today. It's been really fun to talk with you. And as always, as you're listening, thanks for being part of our Gay 15 community. Please check out our other Gay 15 podcasts, our monthlies, and our security sprint. I'll be back on there next week, so you don't have to get stuck with Dave Pounder making fun of me the whole time. And they're all available on the same channel. You'll listen to this interview today. Angie, one more time, thank you very much. And everybody else, please subscribe and share your feedback with us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or via email. And until next time, have fun, live free, and try to be at least somewhat reasonably safe. Thanks for listening.